0: Hello, and welcome to Turn on the Lights. I'm Jane Armate, And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn on the Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Today, we showcase some good news, a glimpse of the future alive today in the present. We will focus here on primary care, the places in healthcare where you rely on a guide, a quarterback, a navigator. Traditionally, this happens in the doctor's office, but there are people today who are deeply rethinking how to build primary care that is better than the model that has prevailed for decades. One of those people
1: who we both have admired for decades as maybe the leading thinker and doer about primary care for the future is with us today, Dr. Rushika Fernanda-Pool. He's chief innovation officer of One Medical. And for two decades, Rashika has been pushing the envelope on what the new primary care needs to be, showing how a new model can work much better.
0: Rashika, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us here on Turn On The Lights. Let's go back a little ways. You were a primary care doctor a few decades ago and have been ever since. And But tell us how you got started in this work and what you were seeing that led you to start a new model of primary care. What were the challenges that you saw What made you think we need a different way of doing
2: that? I actually remember the very moment, Kadar, and it was about 20 years ago. And I was a primary care doc at an academic medical practice here in Boston. And it was a February day. It's cold and it gets dark at about 3.30 in Boston, it seems. And I had a full schedule and it turned out that they often double book people because they don't show up, but everyone decides to show up. And I barely had time to go to the bathroom, let alone eat lunch. And they had just put this new electronic health record system in, which I wasn't very good at. And I couldn't keep up with my notes. So I did a scrawl things in a piece of paper. And then I had to stay for two hours after work to translate these scrawls into the points, the thousand points and clicks you needed to generate your 99214 code and the RVUs or else you get yelled at by people. And I remember staying there late at night, my family was having dinner without me again. And I had a colleague who was doing the same thing, right? It wasn't just me being bad at it. It was a system problem. Right. And she said something very profound. She said, Rushika, Every day I lose a little piece of my soul. Every day I lose a little piece of my soul that pe- we went spent so much time and energy trying to become a doctor. These people come to us and they have such big needs and we could help them so much, but the system won't let me do it. And then this was the damning part and it's getting worse and not better.
0: And And that was when, Rashika, when did this happen? This
2: was about 20 years ago. This was 2003, 2004.
0: And the remarkable thing about this story is it's a story that could still be told today, right? You you hear this every day where doctors are staying two hours after work, filling out their notes, service to the EHR or the electronic health record, as we call it. Go ahead.
2: Absolutely. It unfortunately hasn't changed. And I think my realization was I can't see myself spending the next 30 years of my career doing this. And then I think I'd spent time with people like Don and I worked at a place called the advisory board company. And and by the way, it's not a secret that the healthcare system isn't working. But the typical reaction was we're going to tweak it. We're going to make a little change. We're going to take and do a quality improvement project or something and tweak a little piece of it. And I think the realization I had was that maybe this thing is rotten to the core. <laughs> and maybe what we need to do is actually simply start over. And maybe this thing goes oh, too hard to change everything. We need to change something small. And maybe that's just wrong. Maybe it's too hard to change something small because the system is so entrenched. Maybe we have to change something big and start from scratch. And I realized that the primary lesion, what we taught as doctors is, you know, go to the cause, was that we had built this system on the basis of transactions document code bill next, right? And with a series of transactions. And what I realized is the job of the healthcare system should not be to do more transactions. Last I checked, the point of the healthcare system is to heal people. And last I checked that transactions don't heal people, relationships do. And maybe we had to just build a new system from the ground up based on relationships. And I was young and naive and <laughs> didn't realize how hard that was going to be. It's taken 20 years and still the <laughs> work is still ongoing, as you pointed out. But said, what if we unravel this thing and start from scratch and build a new model? By the way, why primary care? The goal was always to fix all of healthcare. The whole system is broken. But a lot of the things that people try to do to fix it start top down with these Big legislation and these these accountable care organizations trying to fix hospitals and health plans and high deductibles and all this stuff. I said maybe what we should do is flip that and start with the actual the consumer, the patient, the person, and build up from there as opposed to down from the top. And the great place, the great lever, is primary care. And why is that? Because primary care. Remember, the goal is to actually improve health. By the way, if what we do, the point of the healthcare system is to improve health. If we aren't improving health, what do we do? Waste of time, right? But primary care is a great lever point because we can help people with what I call the upstream, right? So how they eat, how they move their relationships, which by the way, there's tons of evidence that it's much more impact on health than anything else, any medical care. And then we can also help them with the downstream. Now, how good we do, they're still going to need hospitals and specialists and good luck as a consumer trying to navigate that yourself and primary care is a great way to do it. So we could be this lever point and let's start over and build a system to actually do that.
0: So, how are you doing? How are you re engineering the actual care environment? The primary care visit, what were you doing to change it? Yeah, so first of all, we got to
2: get out of thinking about re engineering the visit, right? That sort of presupposes it has to be a visit. The real thing is how do we change the production process of delivering primary care, right? How I'm going to. Um, build a relationship and help you improve your health, right? So the first thing we had to do was actually change the business model, right? So the reason why we've ended up I think Don taught me that every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results that it gets. The system has been designed in order to actually do more transactions, to collect more bills, right? So we have to break that. And so we started saying we have to change the business model. Don't pay us per thing we do. Pay us for the relationship, a fixed amount for primary care, and let us just get on with it. Now it's not up to some bureaucrat sitting in some health plan office, I'll pay for X and not Y. It's, the question we ask is not do we have a billing code for it. The question is, will it help improve people's health? And there's a lot of geeky stuff we could talk about how to design good payment models. But in general, we have to pay for improving health, not doing more stuff to people. We have to double down on primary care. Here in the U.S., we spend 5% of our total health care spend, sometimes less, by the way, on primary care and prevention. It means that 95% of what we're spending is what I call failure of primary care complications. It's ridiculous, right? So at least double, and I now think it should be maybe triple down on primary care. And, and let's get on with it, right? So fix the business model. Now we need to build a completely different Delivery system, which is really based on teams and being proactive and not reactive, being accessible to people, interacting with them in what I call an omni-channel way by email and phone and all those things. Typical practices, even today, biased toward visits because they get paid for visits and not other stuff. Help people navigate the system, get them together to learn more about their health. We also learned we have to actually fix the IT platform, that there are these... IT platforms they call electronic health records out there, which maybe not surprisingly were built to help people bill and code more. They helped, to, And so we had to fix that, had to build our own. And then the big thing really is changing the culture, right? What's the culture, what we do? And that's what's taken 20 years to do.
1: Rashik, I can't wait to hear details about that cultural change. But let's go back to that point 20 years ago when you're sitting there and about to lose your soul or something, uh, the reference you made. I want to ask a couple of questions about you at that point. So let me start first. Why did you become a doctor? What did you envision you'd be doing? And why did it matter to you?
2: No, it's a great question, Don. I was actually a government major in college. I'm one of the very few government majors who ended up becoming a doctor. But I was interested both in actually, how do we help people as well as system change? And and what I thought the job of doctors is to help people improve their lives right? Health is such an important part of our life. And how do we do that? And again, I think the the, the problem was that we weren't able to do that <laughs> because of all these, we've medicalized everything and all the sort of cruft we've put on top of things. So again, one of my favorite quotes is from Michelangelo. They asked him one day, how do you build, how did you build the Pieta, this beautiful sculpture that's in Florence? He said, it's really simple, I take a block of stone and I chip away everything that's not the pieta. And I think, again, so much of what we do in healthcare is trying to add more cruft on, right? And it's not the right thing. Healthcare is a beautiful thing. We've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. And I think we don't get, it's really the last 50 or a hundred that we've added all this other stuff onto it. And RVUs and 99214s and all sorts of codes and stuff that it's not clear is actually adding value. Actually, yeah, for me, it's very clear it's not adding value. So we have to get rid of that in order to get back to the core of healthcare.
1: For the listeners that are not familiar with the industry, the RVU, relative value unit, that's the way a lot of doctors are paid. It's like a measure of your productivity, depending on how much skill you are using, how much time you're using it. It's a mainstay thing. And the code Rashik is referring to is a billing code. It's what you'd write down. And based on what you write down, that determines what the government or the insurance company is gonna pay you. Rishika, there you are 20 years ago or more, a young doc with a vision of healing, suddenly you're not there and you get all these ideas. We're gonna hear a lot more about them in in, in a couple of minutes, but what happened when you said that? Like in the environment you were in, wait a minute, this isn't working, we need to start again. Do you remember the reception you got or what some of your experiences were being squeaky wheel?
2: Yeah, so I was within a big academic health center and I went, so I had the luxury at the time of spending part of my time running a interfaculty health policy program, which you, Don, (laughs) convinced me to do, if you remember. And uh, so it gave me some time and energy to think about this. And what would I do if I start from scratch? And I came up with all these ideas. And what I realized is that half these ideas are good and half of them are bad. And I won't know it unless I try it. What I needed is a place to actually test it out. So I went to all the big health systems in town in Boston, and said, look, I've been working on this project at this interfaculty program and have these ideas of how to create a new model for primary care from scratch. And I think it will be better experienced and all those things. And will you let me try it? You have a thousand practices. Give me just one where we can test this out and innovate. And they all said some version of the same thing, which was, wait a second, our practices are full. We're making money. What's the problem? And I was like, care sucks. Patients hate it. Doctors hate it. It's bankrupting the country. But what was impressive, it, it, that those weren't their problems. They were practices for we're making money. What's the problem? And so at some point, I just realized, wait a second, I'm a doc. I can start a practice. And so I did a brave, stupid, crazy, whatever <laughs> adjective you believe in. And I quit the day job. And I said, I'm just going to start a practice and try to do this my own way. And uh, took a second mortgage on the house and got a loan from an old boss of mine, and just started a little practice in Arlington, Massachusetts. It was called Renaissance Health, the rebirth of primary care. By the way, really bad idea because I can't spell Renaissance consistently and no one else can. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. And uh, we had a little Duomo from Florence as a logo. And we said, let's just get on with it. And again, remember, we have to start with the business model. I realized that, wait a second, if we're trapped in this sort of billing codes and health plans telling you what to do, it won't work. So we had this crazy idea that, look, we're going to tell our patients, we're going to try something new. And you're, there are all these things we want to do, which your health plan is too stupid to pay for. So we're going to ask each of you to pay us about $40 a month. It's what you pay for your cell phones and your AOL at the time and your lattes from Starbucks. And by the way, if you're poor, pay us less. If you're rich, pay us more. Um, by the way, that's cute thing. If you're a young person, which is defined as being 35 or younger, because I was 35, I had to be young. So if you were a young person, you pay us 20 bucks a month and let's just get on with it. Right. And now we had the freedom to try out different things. So that was the beginning of it. We started that practice in April of 2004. So 19 years ago,
1: you mentioned, can you, let, let's try this. So if I were a patient at Renaissance Health, and I came in at any age. Tell me in layperson's terms, what's going to be different for me? If I'd seen you a year old practice that would have been like this, but at Renaissance Health, it's like this. And maybe cater is going to have some questions about the details.
2: Yeah. So first of all, my old practice, I would have roughly seven minutes to see you. And by the way, when you walk in, you probably would wait an hour to come. Before you saw me because I respect my time and I don't give a crap about your time. <laughs> so I'll make you wait. And we stack people up so I never have to wait. You come in seven minutes, you a, a medical assistant will see you first. They put you in a paper gown, your butt's hanging out, you're seated at the edge of the bed. I'll walk in, I'll stand up while you're sitting at the sitting in your on on the exam table. And what I will do essentially is the best I can do is deal with one of your problems, not all of them. And I will say, Don, you should eat less, exercise more, take your medicines. Good luck, sucker. I'll see you in three months. And I walk out the door and then you come back, by the way, three months from now and you haven't done it. Now that you bad, non-compliant patient, I told you, you know, That's the old practice. We said, no, this is ridiculous, right? So first of all, we need more time. So we'd spend 30 or 60 minutes with you. When you come in, we don't make you wait. We had a 20-minute wait time guarantee. By the way, if if we ever made you wait, we'll give you a free month of membership because we should respect your time as much as our time. When you come in, we sit down in real clothes on it, real furniture at the same level so we could have a real conversation, right? And then we'll actually talk about what are your things. We start with a shared care plan, which is what is the agenda for what you want to do that's largely driven by what you want. And now I have to inform you, that's my job, but in the end it's up to you. We had a person we call the health coach who is from the community, speaks the language of the of the people we serve and whose job it is to help engage you in how to actually execute on the plan. Right, remember it, not just yelling at people, but how do you do it? What are your barriers? They can close the loop. They can touch base with you after the visit, et cetera. We will email with you and text with you. And we couldn't do video chats back then. We would call and check up on you, see how you're doing. We'd have, you would be invited to join a bunch of groups where you'd get together with other patients to learn about your conditions and to get some support. If you were to go to a specialist, we would help coordinate that. We sometimes send the health coach with you to make sure that you are okay or could translate for you. So, again, this is not a little different than a typical practice. It's completely different.
0: Rashika, what was the response that you got from the people that you were working with this way? Patients patient staff that you engaged? What did people, how did people respond to this new model that you were putting forward?
2: Yeah, the patients absolutely loved it. And people are like, how do you know? I think they wrote checks to us every month. Actually, they swipe their credit card. Like they, if people ever wanted to leave, we felt like you should go and we'll give you a refund. So people loved it, right? We had, we tracked a thing called net promoter scores where you ask people how likely are you were referred as to a friend or a colleague. And what you do is you take the, take the number of people who like you and then you subtract out people who even are lukewarm. You get a net number. So most of primary care. It's struggles to break zero, right? And we were at the 90% range, right? We had virtually 100% of people would keep renewing. So, so patients absolutely love this. Unfortunately, a lot of people in that broader health system, the what I call the medical industrial complex, they didn't like it.
0: Yeah. Right? So the people that said you can't have one practice to do this must not have been particularly happy with the fact that you were Attracting some of their patients, perhaps, from their environment. Is that?
2: Yeah, we were accused of stealing patients from other practices. We were accused of raising expectations of making other practices look bad. And don't you understand this could upset the status quo? And the obvious pushback is exactly what you're trying to do is upset the status quo, right? So by the way, the, the goal of this, if you remember, was actually transform healthcare. And I think everyone needs to have a theory of change, right? And I thought my theory of change was what I call the Southwest Airlines theory of change, right? US Airlines circa 1980, high fares, crappy service, like what change? It wasn't the government, it wasn't American and Delta waking up and deciding to be better, there's a new entrant coming in and just doing it better, breaking what people thought were rules, getting customers to vote with their feet. And that not only caused those customers to get better carefares and better service. But what it did, it kicked the rest of the industry in the behind. That right. we better change, we're going to lose our customers.
0: Threaten the as incumbents,
2: as it were. Yes.
0: Was Renaissance threatening the incumbents in, in Boston? So shockingly, yes. We got called
2: in by one of the big health plans who kicked us out of their network, and they were afraid that this would actually... We were tiny. We were two doctors and a little practice, but it was apparently threatening to people.
0: So what did you do? What comes next in the story? Renaissance? It was
2: really clear to me, by the way, that that this sort of better care was not just better experience and better outcomes, but that we were saving money for the healthcare system, right? Because primary care is actually pretty cheap, and if you do it right, you can avert unnecessary emergency room visits, cardiac catheterizations, hospitalizations. But I couldn't prove it. I went to all the health plans and asked, "Can you? Can I have the data?" And they told me essentially,
0: no, go to hell. Let's pause here for a second, because this is where it gets a little bit complicated in the story. And I want to make sure that we all can understand this. So how did you know you were saving money? Like, how did you know instinctively that this model of service, I can get, I completely understand why the experience as a patient, if I walked in as a... Well, whether I was 35 or more, I don't know, but whatever. I can understand how I would have a better experience of care based on the fact that you're sitting eye level with me and talking to me for 30 to 60 minutes and helping me out, really digging into what matters to me and helping me make that happen. I can get that your staff are satisfied. I also understand why the incumbents are threatened because this is changing the game uh, and the story here. But how's the money work? Why do you think you were saving the system money? Yeah.
2: Yeah, if you think about it, we were doing sort of three things to people. So the first thing we were doing so much, so so again, Don is one of the people who taught this to me, is 30, maybe 50 percent of what we do in U.S. healthcare is waste. And waste is not just things that people are getting that they neither want nor need, but actually are causing harm to them. But you you really believe that the 30 to 50 percent of what we do is Absolutely waste. is waste, is things that people neither want nor need. There's this myth that this fee-for-service system is, has propagated that more healthcare is better. I think that's deeply woven, unfortunately, into the culture. And, and it isn't. By the way, particularly for older people, right? Healthcare is incredibly harmful. It's so what I thought biggest healthcare is the fourth biggest cause of death in this country. And we need to actually give people things they want and need and and then there's a whole other set of issues about pricing by the way which are egregious and hidden but we can get to that later And so by doing primary care, and by the way, there's this whole thing of, let's give patients some skin in the game and let them figure this out. Good luck with that. There are huge information asymmetries and maybe more importantly, power asymmetries. When you're a patient, you show up, you're sick, you didn't go to medical school, the guy in a white coat standing over you, like thinking you're going to comparison shop is fooling yourself. Now, if you have me, your primary care doctor who works for you next to you. Now you've got a fighting chance, right? So we can actually help you avoid what I call the shenanigans of people who want to do stuff to you you don't need. We can help you actually improve what's called your self-efficacy, being able to know how to deal with my disease. And we can actually improve your health. So you don't even need these things in the first place. So we really felt like, and at the time at Renaissance, unfortunately, we couldn't, prove this because we had, didn't have the data. The data wasn't what we had. it's just anecdotes, right? We could tell we avoided this ER visit because we saw this guy on a Saturday morning. But what I needed to do is get what's called the claims data, right? The insurance company pays for these things. I can look at their stream of what they pay for and see whether my patients were using it less than comparable patients who are not coming to me. And that's what we needed.
0: And is that, so how did you solve the problem? How did you get the information needed to actually make the case that this was scalable and that you could bring this to a wider audience?
2: Yeah, so we had to pivot this and we said, who else? We were getting killed, right, by the By these forces not wanting us to do this. We said, we need an ally. And who is allied with us? And the obvious answer at the time were the self-insured employers, right? So in the US, we by and large, if you're under 65, We'll get to that later. We have an employment based healthcare insurance system, right? By and large, people get their insurance from their employer. And most big employers, they don't actually. The employer actually bears the risk for a variety of quirky reasons. But the insurance company is just pushing the paper. But it's the employer's money. So we actually got a contract with the company, the Boeing Company. I think everyone knows who Boeing is. They build commercial airplanes. And Boeing in Seattle was really concerned about healthcare costs. And why was that? Boeing has only one competitor left in the world on the commercial side, which is Airbus. So every time Boeing takes a seven thirty-seven and they go to the Farnsworth Air Show and they're putting it up against a A three nineteen from Airbus, they have this huge cost disadvantage because Airbus is in France and the French don't pay healthcare costs. And by the way, you say they're in higher taxes and the taxes pay for even the average cost of healthcare in France is half of what it is in the U.S. And by the way, they have better outcomes. So for Boeing, this was actually a business decision. So we had a, a gentleman named Arnie Milstein who worked for a company called Mercer Health and Benefits, and he allowed, he helped us get a contract with the Boeing company to say, let's do this for Boeing employees. So now we could do this. So two really wonderful, three wonderful things happened. One was we had a big brother who'd protect us. Boeing, Boeing is huge and powerful. Number two is, instead of asking the patients to pay this $40 a month, Boeing would pay it, right? We said, why why make patients pay for this? The people on the hook for healthcare costs are too. And three is when Boeing asks their health plans, give me the data, they say, yes, sir, where do I send it? As opposed to when we ask and they tell us, get lost, right? So that allowed us to, so we build these practices in conjunction with some progressive health systems that Boeing used up in the Puget Sound area. That's where Boeing builds most of their big commercial airplanes. And that was a pilot called the Intensive Outpatient Care Program. And we ran that for about three years.
1: Back to assume you said that you were getting killed by the incumbents. And so you went looking for friends. What did getting killed mean? Like, how were they fighting you? What was going on?
2: Yeah, so we had so several things. So one is they filed some bills in the state legislature in Massachusetts to make it illegal for patients to pay for their own health care, which seems ridiculous. the um, was doing It smart. was a number of the health plans and the health systems. One of the big health plans in Massachusetts kicked us out of the network is that they said we couldn't see their patients anymore, which they have the unilateral right to do, so we couldn't see their patients. And a big health system we contracted through... They, they told us they weren't going to let us grow because we were making their practices look bad and upsetting the status quo. So that really was, it was really awful that we had to shut down this practice, but but it, it meant that we had to pivot to this other model. Um, so let's talk a little more
1: about this, uh, the environment and the, you've had a better mousetrap and why didn't everybody just reach for it. Before you do that, Let i to go back to patients. So most of the people listening to us right now. I think we're trying to imagine the patient role. Can you tell a story about a patient like, so some somebody you remember, of course, not by name, but a pretty difficult situation. What did you do? How did you handle it? What happened?
2: Yeah, I have hundreds of stories. and Maybe I have one, a patient, so this was a 60 something year old lady who came to us and her dog. And she, when I met her, she had a sort of chart the size of a phone directory. She had, she had worked up in a place called North Shore of Boston. She worked as an insurance exec, insurance adjuster for Liberty Mutual insurance company. Her primary problem is she was a heavy smoker. She had started smoking at age 12 like many of the young women in her generation did. So she ended up with awfully, awful COPD, chronic lung disease. She could walk barely 10 feet before getting out of breath. She was on home oxygen. She was on home steroids. She was on every inhaler I'd ever heard of. She also had diabetes. She had osteoporosis, probably as a result of all the steroids. She had several compression fractures. She had a whole list of conditions. She was on 28 different medications when I saw her. And she spent most of the prior year in a hospital or a rehab. She'd go to the hospital, she had discharged, go to rehab, go to a skilled nursing facility, go back home. When she was at home, she had about 30 doctors, 30 specialists that she was seeing. She accumulated them like barnacles on a ship. And each visit to the specialist would take one of her daughters taking a day off from work, getting an hour to get dressed, going in, paying forty dollars for parking. And the specialist did their own little thing but didn't care about the other stuff. She had a primary care doctor who at seven minutes would see the chart, would just throw their hands up, give her a flu shot, and tell her good luck, sucker. The family had no plan, they didn't know what they were doing. She had cost the system quarter million dollars. And so we said, let's just figure this out. I said, Let's get all three daughters. When are you going to be home? My health, the health coach, Kelly, and I went and spent two hours actually in her house with the three daughters and like went through all her records, went through all her meds and figured out what the story was. And the key intervention was really asking, what do you really want? And she had NCH COPD. She probably had six months to live.
1: COPD she is uh, chronic lung disease.
2: Lung disease. And what she really said is, I want to be home for the holidays. And she had some stupid cardiologists that told her favorite thing was to go buy these fancy cheeses, but some cardiologists had told her, oh, you shouldn't eat cheese because it's too fatty and it'll hurt your heart. I was like, who cares? Eat cheese. (laughs) God's sake. So we trimmed off like most of her specialists. We got rid of most of her medications. We set up a weekly conference. We kept a couple of them and including we added one specialist, which is palliative care. We set up a monthly conference call with the three daughters and her. And said, let's just manage this going forward. We explained to them about her conditions and what the prognosis was. And over time, that year after that, she ended up spending virtually the whole time in her house. She had only two hospitalizations. Oh, again, I want to be really clear. This is not a magic story. We couldn't cure her. And about a year after we ended up taking care of her, she ended up having a complication. Uh, we had a nice conversation with the three daughters and her. As to the extent she could participate. And we decided we were not going to send her to the hospital. And she passed away with hospice care in her house with her three daughters next to her. And by the way, people say this is not practical. We spent a ton of time. But the reality is she cost the system $250,000 a year before. She cost the system about $20,000 a year. We took care of her. But this ex- maybe the better point, Don, is this is exactly the way that you will want to be treated and that you would want your mom to be treated, and I think I'm just tired of the system giving us excuses why they can't do this. The economics work if you just align it the right way.
0: I think that story illustrates also the power and value of understanding what really matters to the patient. You carefully figured out what really mattered to her, whether it was the cheese or how she wanted to eventually die and pass away. You And to, both to her and her family, you found a way to build that relationship. Back to the theme that you started us off in. We moved the experience of primary care from a highly transactional one to one that was relationship-based so beautifully. So, Rashika, you've now built a bigger business with Boeing. You, you took off into what became Iora Healthcare and now is One Medical. It's grown and scaled and become much, much bigger, I think, than what it was when it was in our life. But the principles are the same as what you started with about becoming, focusing on the relationship. Um, it's scaled massively, but what's stopping the spread from what's stopping us from scaling this all over the place? This sounds like better. It sounds like just a better way of being in relationship between doctors and patients. Why isn't this the standard everywhere at this point in
2: time? It's a great question, Conard. That's so, by the way, massively is an overstatement. So we now, so we grew this from Boeing. We worked with the casino workers. We started one at a time, started getting some scale. We started raising some capital. We were one of the first companies to actually raise some external capital which we could talk about. We ended up getting to about 50 practices as Iora, and then we merged with another company doing a similar thing called One Medical. So together, we have about 200 practices across the country. We've got 800,000 patients that we're serving, but out of 350 million or whatever the number is, right, it's tiny. We're rounding error, right? So the question you're asking is why, this is clearly the right thing for patients. We over and over show that we're having better outcomes and that we're lowering the cost of care and that the people working our Practices like it better, right? So, why is this not happening? I think the short answer is we have unfortunately created this sort of what I call medical industrial complex, who, despite the rhetoric, actually doesn't want to change. And I'll give you a few examples. So one are the big health systems, right, who control a lot of the healthcare. They make money out of filling hospital beds and filling cats labs. And what we do is we reduce those things. It doesn't make friends with them. We have been sued by people. We've been, had a lot of people accuse us of taking their patients away.
0: Unlike the original objections to Renaissance, right? Yeah, and you're, your patients, you're building a model that's better than what we have and we're threatened by it. Same story, but now it is. Has- bigger scale and nationwide because that's your network.
2: It is. You know, the health plans, particularly on the commercial side, meaning the under 65 side, remember most of these employers are self-insured and the health plans make a percentage off the top. They'll get paid X percent of the total premium. They're a little like the house in Las Vegas at a corporate game. A percentage of a bigger number is a bigger number. So again, despite the rhetoric, they have no incentive to lower health care costs. They actually have a perverse incentive to raise health care costs and to keep people sick because they make a bigger amount, right? And by the way, just to be clear, these are the nonprofit, as well as the for-profits, right? You, the, plenty of the players in the healthcare hide behind the fact they're putatively non-for-profit, but they're making a fortune right off of this game. The drug companies make a fortune on selling drugs at a higher cost. The consultants make a percentage off the top. It's a little like, I have a friend, I have three daughters who are in their 20s and I had a friend who was the, hired a wedding planner. The wedding planner got paid a percentage of the wedding cost. I was like, that's a really bad idea to pay your wedding planner a percentage of the wedding costs. Guess what? You're going to get the most expensive food and band you have ever heard of. And that's a little bit how we've set the system up. And I think that's what's the real... Head And Then the other problem is healthcare is probably the biggest, one of the biggest spenders on lobbying in Washington and in state houses. And they rigged the system and the rules to make it very hard for new entrants to come in. And we've let them get bigger and bigger by merging together every day almost. You read about a healthcare merger of these guys getting bigger and having more and more concentration to be able to squelch new entrants, right? So that's what S we've got ourselves in.
0: So Rashika, what would it take to make this new way of doctoring, this new way of providing this essential relationship-based care, what would it take to make that the standard model? If you had to say, these are the things that need to change, some of which you might be alluding to here in terms of decoupling the money from the way that we make money, the way that the lobbying works, etc. But what's it going to take for us to try to make relationship-based medicine that you pioneered the way that Every one of us gets our chair.
2: Yeah, so I think there's several things. So one, which is actually happening, is changing payment models, right? So I think this fee-for-service payment system that we have where you pay people per thing you do is part one of their lesions. And I think we have to change it. What's interesting is where the leadership here is not on the free enterprise commercial side, it's actually with the government. So remember I made a clear thing, we actually have a single payer in the U.S. once you turn 65. If you live long enough, we have the, the government says you're over 65, we're going to make sure you get health care. There are two ways you can get health care. <laughs> You can get it through the government, through Medicare, you get mailed a Medicare card, you can go anywhere and you show it. Or you can get it through what's called a Medicare Advantage plan, which is through a health plan. And there are lots of issues, details we could talk about. But in general, the government has said by 2030, we want 100% of people in Medicare to be in what's called a full risk arrangement, where the provider who's taking care of them is at full risk They're getting paid, not per thing they do, but for the life itself. And they are incented to actually make people healthier
0: and not. More in a sense, it's a payment model that's based on a relationship, right? It's a payment model yeah, that's based on Rashika and that patient that you described, the woman in her 60s. You would have a payment that would come to you to take care of that that patient on a monthly basis. So that's the way that these work, generally speaking, right?
2: Yep. And so I think we need more of that. So on the Medicare side, so we ended up having done a lot of our growth on the Medicare side. We have saw a small number of progressive employers, people like Boeing, actually, who are moving in that direction, but a shockingly small number. So that's one is payment redesign. Number two is, I think we need to absolutely look at these monopolies we've been creating <laughs> in healthcare and, and these concentrations of power of these sort of for keeping new entrants out. And we need to do something about that if we want to do it. But the big thing, and again, back to my theory of change, the Southwest Airlines theory of change for your listeners, is the best way that every individual can actually make this happen is vote with your feet. If you're getting crappy care and crappy service, find someone who does something like what we do. And there, by the way, now there are a lot of people like it, not a lot. There are a growing number of people who are like us. We're starting to wake up and say, we need a different model. And I think if the more consumers start voting with their feet, that that's maybe the only thing that will cause the incumbents to change.
0: Maybe we can just make this one important point. I think what we are trying to help our audience understand is what can they do? And you just told them a thing that us listening here today can do. Find a model that you feel is relationship-focused and is a new and different model for what it can look like.
2: Yep. Rushika, does your model work for people who are very poor? Yeah. We have served a number of folks who are poor. What we need to do is figure out a payment model that works for them. And we found a number of ways to do it. Right. And then I'll tell you what's hard. Right. So, for instance, on Medicare, it's easy because Medicare covers everything, no matter how poor you are. And we work really well with dual eligible people on Medicare and Medicaid who are poor older people. And this works fine because we can access the same payment stream that Medicare has. We had a great project we work with in New York City with a company called Grameen America. And Grameen was a micro lending company that would take really poor, largely immigrant women, give them small loans to start businesses or to help, and then they would pay back. And we built clinics for them in New York City. And it was a dollar a day primary care clinic, back to our roots at Renaissance, where they would pay us a dollar a day, if you couldn't afford to pay us less. And that sort of work doing it. So we've had a number of things. The one place we have struggled with is in what's called Medicaid, which are the state-based programs. For, for folks who are poor. And the problem we run into, and this is maybe the more detail one gets into, remember the bet we're making is going to invest upfront in primary care and prevention, double down on primary care, and then we'll get the savings in the back end. The dirty little secret though, is it doesn't happen when you snap your fingers, right? So remember even the lady I talked about, we spent more money on her in the beginning. And it took six months to a year to two years to have the economics work out to prevent the downstream things. So the key is we need to have these relationships over time. The problem with a lot of Medicaid is people cycle on and off Medicaid. There are more and more work hour restrictions and all sorts of mishegas that happens in Medicaid where people cycle on and off and it makes it an unwinnable game for people like us. Yes, oh, yeah, it can I mean, work.
1: That's like a form of building not working on relationships, not transactions it means relationships occur over time. I got a couple of quick questions before we unfortunately running out of time. I want to go back to your comment on culture. So you have employed or engaged doctors and nurses to work with you. Is that a hard transition? Would most doctors and nurses you think to be in the kind of environment you're building or is it really shocking and very different for them?
2: So notice what we're not doing. We're not going to a group of doctors and nurses and saying, I want to make you change. What we're saying is we have a different vision and a different model of care. If you like it, come over here. If you don't like it, keep doing what you're doing. And then I mumble under my breath and someday we'll take your patients away. So what happens is we're selecting the people. So by the way, some people don't like it. So we do every morning, we do a huddle where we sit around a table and we talk about our patients. The doctor doesn't sit at the head of the table. They don't even run the, they don't run the huddle. We all say we all run the practice. We all run the huddle. We have a very egalitarian team, change the power dynamics. Some people love that. Some people hate it. I'm the captain of the ship. I'm in charge. I need to, be yeah, fine, don't work here. So that's our theory of change. Again, find the people who want to do this and then encourage it and do things to actually strengthen that culture. And then what happens is group of 10 dogs, two of them will come over. After about six months, the third guy was about to come over but wanted to see other people. He'll come over six months later and say, hey, can I visit the practice? Hey, this is not only not scary, this is better than what I had before. Can I come over? Then the fourth guy and number six, seven, eight may never come over, but that's fine. Eventually, they'll be put out to pasture somewhere, right? So that's really about how we create culture.
1: Okay, my last question then, Cater, I'll take us out here, Rashika. Um So you have battle scars to show for this. You've had a lot of success, but I've been I've seen your struggles. Where are you now in the optimism to pessimism? Gail, do you think that there's a it's possible to tip the system in the direction of the kind of relationship-oriented care you're talking about? Do you think that the forces of incumbency are just going to win? Where are you on
0: that? Yeah, it's
2: a great question, Don. Um, it's really hard for all the reasons I said, but I am more optimistic. And I think for a couple of reasons, one is I think consumer, it's almost gotten so bad consumers are finally waking up, right? And I hope that's true. Number two is what's different is there's now a lot of capital and bigger folks getting into the game. That's a double-edged sword, by the way, right? Because when you when you start opening the floodgates of this stuff, it also attracts a lot of what I call bad actors. And there are plenty of them out there who say the same thing. And healthcare is full of this, where people start out, I think we I put us on this category, trying to, do the right thing. And then a bunch of people realize that, hey, maybe this is successful. They come out and they say the same things, but they don't actually do it. And they take shortcuts and they do sometimes nefarious things, right? So we've got plenty of them in in, in the game now. So we'd be careful, but it does allow people... Were able to. And now it's the big guy. One medical was just purchased by Amazon and that deal hasn't closed yet. The CVS is getting into primary care. I just read that Dollar General is getting into primary care. Walmart's getting into primary care. So a lot of the big guys are now, again, for better or for worse, getting into the space. So if nothing else, I think the forces kicking the incumbents in the behind are maybe accelerating.
0: But, we'll but see whether
1: it's for better or worse.
0: Yeah, I guess by the well, way, I, I can't help but ask this. You see all these local stores and actors, CVS, Dollar General, Walmart, et cetera, Amazon. Do you believe they're going to build relationship-based medicine the way that you pioneered? Is this, is that the future here? These organizations, these, we're close to them. We go to them every week to visit them for our other needs. Will we see them in the same way for our healthcare needs?
2: Yeah, I think so. unfortunately they're prior iterations of this have not been what we're doing. and But I think there's an opportunity for them to do that. We spent $3.8 trillion on healthcare in this year, in this country. Maybe, that, maybe it's over four months. So this is, I think, the biggest opportunity they have if they actually start doing the right thing. They have not yet, in the past, the hope, maybe it's a little hopeful, is that they
0: could in the future. I hope they listen to you, Rashid, <laughs> in, their, in the design that they're planning. It's a, been a drill for both Don and I owe to listen to you, to follow your work. You've been a true pioneer, a Renaissance man. I use that <laughs> word. You have quoted Michelangelo in this podcast, so I think it's appropriate for me to say that. And it's just a real wonderful opportunity for us to listen to you. And I very much do hope that our listeners will take you up on the challenge that you presented them, which is to vote with their feet. If you have a primary care relationship that you're not particularly happy with, find Rashika or someone like him near nearby you and change your care provider to someone who's going to focus on the relationship and what matters to you as a patient and a person. With that, let me say thank you and let us say thank you to you and for your contribution here today, Rashika, and for what you do.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Bye.
0: So Don, what did you hear? That was a pretty exciting interview that we just had with Rashika. That was—he's obviously an inspiration to both of us in, in, in different ways. But it's exciting to hear him reflect on his journey and what he's been through and what he's learned. Yeah, I heard good news or, and bad news. I must
1: say, I, full disclosure—I think Rashika's a genius. I think what he's done in reconceptualizing primary care and healthcare is—he really leads the pack.
0: And he's been doing it for a long time. He's he was way ahead of his time. Twenty years ago, Rashika was busy thinking about what's going to be different.
1: Yeah. And I got back in those days, I got to visit Iora Health units and watch this. I, I went on a retreat with Rashika and his own doctors. These were remarkably different settings. In the clinic in the clinical system, the whole orientation was meet the patient's needs, find out what really matters to them, and don't let Habits or rules, or even payments, stand in the way. We're going to do what people need. And he was, some of those patients were very needy. And he had the vision to say the only way we're going to get that done is if we accept the risk. If we take what's called capitated payments, we'll take an annual fee for taking care of a patient. And then it's up to us how to spend that money. It was remarkable. And the cultural change, the doctors who he recruited, doctors and nurses, they were in the best possible sense, a kind of cult. They actually believed that they could do care differently. And I I remember feeling I would have been lucky to be a patient there. I would have gotten what I really wanted and needed. That was the good news.
0: I remember when I first met Rashika not long ago, he was telling us about the model and somebody in our small group that was listening to him signed their parents up for iora straight away. It's exactly that type of thing. The same reaction that you're having here, which is how do I where do I get that kind of care? And what was interesting to me, one of the things in his early description of how he created it, he described a set of conditions, beating his head against the wall at the end of a clinic day, two hours sitting in front of a computer entering stuff into an EHR that was frustrating him and not just him, but everyone else in his uh, clinical team. And I was, it was so struck me that story is, as relevant and true today as it was when he started. Worse on average. Yeah, yeah. Some people
1: would have might misunderstand that this is called concierge medicine. That would mean if it's misinterpreted, you pay extra money and you get extra, so you get extra attention from doctors and small panel sizes and stuff. This has all those properties of really attention to the patient, but in no way was Rashika's model aimed at wealthy people only by any means. He was Ill-
0: Medicare beneficiaries for the most part now, anyway. But uh, yep. that's so as everyone over the age of 65 in our country could potentially benefit from this. Yeah, Don, it, you've gone on record talking about the kind of payment model that Rashika's organization benefits from. Met, it's something called Medicare Advantage. And part of your analysis is that kind of approach to payment, Medicare paid through private organizations like EIWRA and others, is potentially problematic. I'm just curious, what makes Rashika's approach transformative and exciting and so many of the others potentially not? At least at least two things. First, we're not... Medicare Advantage is an
1: example of paying capitated amounts for a population. So you instead of you say, okay, you had a visit, we'll pay you this amount. You had a test, we'll pay you this amount. What you're doing with capitated payment is Medicare. In this case, CMS is saying to a health plan, you take responsibility for these people and we'll give you so many thousand dollars a year for their care. And then you can use that money any way you want. You can do what you want with it. That kind of flexibility, which is a feature of the relationships Rashika was seeking seems to be necessary. I think if we can stay stuck in the pay you for every widget for every event, we can never develop the integrated care.
0: It becomes all transactional and not relationship based, which is so much of what Rashika was talking about. Yeah. If I have to need if we have a
1: need to spend more time with this patient, let's do it. Let's not decide how many minutes per dollar we're going to make or something. So it, it frees you from this production oriented or transactional, as Shika mentioned, to, to relationship. Medicine. The problem with Medicare Advantage, in my view, and that's probably grist for enough show, is that you can do that in some cases directly with the doctors. Rashika would be accepting risk for a population, but more often a Medicare Advantage, in particular, you're interposing an insurance company, a financier. They take the money, they take a share, a big share, and then they dole that out to the doctors. Sometimes even on a fee for service basis. In addition, because of the way you pay the plan, you obviously want you want to make sure that the plan Plan has an incentive to take care of sick people, so you have to pay them more when they're enrolling a sick person. That's created a whole coding game in which now the health plans are out there adding codes to records and getting more money, even though they're not changing the care at all. That is—that's Chris for another show. That's Chris for another show. Uh- that's for another show. That, no, that's not what Rashika's doing. Rashika, at least not in the backstory, he really was taking—he himself, the re- clinicians themselves, were taking that risk, and they were very mission focused. They were. This was not a financial play, and what. Whether they upcoded patients or not, that's a different... I don't know. I think probably less than others, but it, it's a trustworthy kind of relationship. You don't need Medicare Advantage to do that if CMS is smart about what they're calling value-based payment. So that's a little bit... It like what,
0: yeah. What, it sounds like what we were saying is that we like the fact that there's the ability to move from a transactional basis for caring for people to a holistic payment that allows us to actually be relationship-based with our patients. But there's a whole lot of things that can happen when you interpose a, a payment, a payer, a health plan, coding games, other kinds of things that can create a very harmful cycle of, of really exploiting that relationship-based payment, which is unfortunately what in many cases has taken place, not necessarily with Rashika and with Iora, but with other environments around the country.
1: Yeah, you, the focus shifts from taking care of the patient to taking to, to financial strategies, and that's not what we started, where this all, where this all started. With
0: Rashika seemed pretty hopeful towards the end. You know, I think he's been through a lot. He's he's fighting an uphill. He was fighting an uphill battle 20 years ago in some ways, and he's made some progress. But he admits that it's only a fraction of the total number of patients that need this kind of relationship-based medicine.
1: Um, We all need that relationship-based medicine. At least that's what I want. (laughs) But yeah, the downside of Rashika's story, of course, began as he tried to bring these fresh, new, wonderful ideas to his own academic base at the Harvard Medical School environment, where people said, eh, we're making money now, we're doing okay now. Why would we want to change? We have a thing that works. No. And uh, he eventually had to go out on his own. He had to say, well, can't play with you. I've got to go out on my own. And that struggle continued. That was a decades-long struggle for Rashika, and even in the past year or so, talking with him about trying to get people to invest in this model, he was still having trouble. The doctors is interesting because it is a different way to practice, much better if you ask me, but a lot of doctors are trained differently. And he, I think Rashika was quite selective in making sure that if you joined his practice, you shared these values. So it's all about the patient. It's all about meeting the patient's needs. And if, he, if that wasn't your thing, then you ought to be working somewhere else.
0: It strikes me that that notion of the patient's goal has to be at the heart of this, sort of back to something that we talk about a lot, the two of us talk about it a lot, what, what matters to the patient needs to be the centering force in, in medicine and in healthcare. And what Rashika's model does is put the patient's desire, need, ambition, health goals Right at the middle of the relationship that there's a payment model around, boy, is that a threat to the incumbency. From what he could share in our conversation, there were so many obstacles that people put up around that notion. It seems so intuitive. Why wouldn't we want that? And yet, because the system is not architected that way, potentially poses it a threat. Yeah, it's a change. All our business models, all the
1: hospital's business models up until recently, at least, have been predicated on you do more, you get paid for more. It's not, it's all transactional and that's a culture change and it's a mentality change for the doc. I think the paradox here is that I truly believe that as a clinician working in the environment that Rashik is describing is a far more satisfying thing to do. You're not trapped on a gerbil cage. Gerbil cage. You're, You get to say, I think what you need is a taxi voucher or some meals, maybe somebody to help you be less lonely, instead of looking to see what the billing code is. Uh, I think it's also, I'll bet, we don't know for sure, but I'll bet long run, if you take out all that, especially if you take out all that insurance company profit making, it it saves money. I'm quite sure in the long run, especially for people with chronic illnesses, Rashika's model would be cheaper by far than what we're doing now.
0: Oh, it also seems incredibly satisfying to practice that way, doesn't it? If you're if I had a chance to be a physician in that kind of practice environment and actually meet people's needs beyond what I'm capable of as a clinician, but being able to provide that taxi voucher, or that that extra set of meals or otherwise, that would be enormously satisfying, I imagine, to a physician or sure, um, sure. Makes uh, you feel
1: helpless to identify a need and not be able to meet it. Makes you feel great to identify a need and be able to meet
0: it. Don, thanks for that conversation. And it was great to have Rashika on. I look forward to seeing where he goes. Me too.
1: Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand.
0: To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.